Aphrodite, a humorous Regency novel by D.G. Rampton. Chapter 19. A week later, after the first quiet dinner en famille that the Hartwood ladies had enjoyed at home for some days, they retired to the pretty blue parlour at the back of the house that they had discovered to be cosier than the drawing room, and on a chilly late November night, a good deal easier to heat. Making themselves comfortable by the crackling fire, they began the respective tasks they had assigned themselves for the evening. Lady Hartwood, to read through her neat pile of correspondence, and April, to pick up her needle and sew some recently purchased lace onto the décolleté of an old chemise, in the hope of imbuing it with a more modish appearance. After a long, contented silence, Lady Hartwood looked up from her reading and remarked, Mother has sent through the list she promised. What list? April asked absent-mindedly, her concentration on her needlework. For the dinner party we are to host, remember, love, she wishes us to invite some people who will be useful in launching you into society. You mean useful in securing me a husband? April remarked. That too, of course. You do not mind, do you? I would never wish to force you into anything you do not like. But I know you understand the benefit of marrying an eligible, sweet-tempered young man who can give you a comfortable home and children. Yes, certainly, I want a comfortable home and children, replied April, but for some reason she could not agree to wanting the sweet-tempered man. It occurred to her that this was a rather strange reticence on her part. Her needle paused in mid-air as she considered the reason for it. With an unwelcome jolt of insight, she realised it might have something to do with the fact that she could not picture a certain Mr. Hugh Royce described in such terms. "'Why are you frowning, love?' asked Lady Hartwood. "'Frowning is lethal for a lady's complexion. So ageing!' April smoothed out her features and smiled. "'I was just wool-gathering. Tell me, who does Grandmama wish us to invite?' "'Let me see,' began Lady Hartwood. "'Apart from Mother,' Albert and the two of us, she has also included Mrs. Jameson, the Duke of Clarendon and his mother, Mrs. Beechcroft and her daughter, and, oh, of course, dear Hugh. April could not imagine why her mother had fallen into the habit of saying dear Hugh. It was most irritating. There was nothing in his conduct that she could discern to warrant such an endearment. The Beechcrofts are unknown to me, she remarked. I was introduced to them at Mrs. Jameson's soiree, said Lady Hartwood. The daughter is really quite beautiful, and I suppose they could be called pleasant company, but you know how it is, we had little opportunity to converse properly. However, according to Mother, she pointed to a place in the letter she held, they come from an old Somerset family, and Mrs. Beechcroft is a friend of the Duchess, so I assume she means us to invite them on her account. But why does she make no mention of Miss Starling? asked April. Hugh is bound to take offence. Oh, do you think he would? said Lady Hartwood airily. I don't see why he should. But of course he would, replied April. She's his fiancée. Oh, well, perhaps your grandmother simply forgot about her. I doubt it. Her memory is better than mine. I fear she has excluded poor Miss Starling on purpose. Lady Hartwood looked away self-consciously and fidgeted with the fringe of the paisley shawl around her shoulders. Oh, well, she has her reasons, no doubt. Rising to her feet all of a sudden, she went on, I should begin the invitations tonight. 
The date is set a little more than a week away and I am not at all certain we will be able to secure everyone's attendance at such short notice. I wouldn't be overly concerned, said April, smiling. Grandmama will have somehow discovered everyone's commitments through her network of spies and picked the date accordingly. She never leaves anything to chance. It appeared that this prediction may have had some truth to it, as the replies that arrived over the next few days were all in the affirmative. April viewed everyone's acceptance with mixed feelings. On the one hand, she was pleased on her mother's account, for it was a triumph of sorts for her. But, on the other, she was conscious that she was being asked to feed several illustrious persons who were used to only the best of culinary excellence, and she was not at all confident that her hired cook-housekeeper or her purse were up to the task. Thankfully, her fears were soon put to rest by the arrival of a note from her grandmother, informing her to expect the celebrated individual who graced the Delamere kitchens in Richmond together with some supplies within the next few days. April might make it a rule never to accept money from her grandmother, but she was not one to look a gift horse in the mouth when it came in the shape of the talented Monsieur Balzac, and certainly not when her mother's reputation was at stake. Lord Paisley might belittle the importance of the opinion of others when it came to his betrothal. However, April knew that her mother's life would be a great deal easier if she was accepted by her peers from the start. Monsieur Balzac arrived late one morning the following week in Mrs. Delamere's carriage and was followed by a retinue of three other vehicles. It seemed to April that he had brought half the Delamere household with him, two kitchen underlings and three footmen, a full Limoges dinner service, five large chests of crystal and silverware packed in individual velvet-covered casings, six heavy-bottomed gilt candelabras, a generous supply of beeswax candles that prompted April to exclaim they would need to shield their eyes over dinner, the carcasses of six partridges, one wild boar and two turtles, and a large straw basket full of bound but very much alive lobsters. Somewhat startled by such a grand cavalcade, April quickly sent for Mrs Plum, whose assistance she had previously requested in greeting Monsieur, a diplomatic manoeuvre she hoped would better dispose the woman to having her domain besieged by an outsider. But she need not have worried. The moment Mrs Plum was introduced to her usurper, she dropped into a curtsy and said exultantly, It's an honour to be making your acquaintance. Your treatise on French sauces commands pride of place in my kitchen. Monsieur, who had greeted April with familiar but strict courtesy, broke into a winning smile at this confession, and, taking hold of Mrs Plum's hand, helped her to rise. Non, non, viens. I cannot allow a beautiful woman to bow at my feet. Mrs Plum's eyes widened in surprise, and, for the first time, took note of Monsieur's attractive countenance and surprisingly trim physique for a man in his middle years. She had always received her fair share of male attention with her well-rounded curves, but, having given her whole heart to her profession, had attained her fiftieth year without seriously considering the marriage offers that had come her way, her self-allocated title conferring a certain formal status rather than proclaiming her marital state. She liked to think of herself as a pragmatic woman and had not been brought to blush for many a year. Yet she now found her cheeks heated with pleasure and embarrassment, and her tongue strangely tied. Dites-moi, madame, what do you think on the chapter on the bechamel sauce? Monsieur asked her. Mrs. Plum looked away uncomfortably and appeared uncertain how to reply. 
Please, there is no need for diplomacy, said Monsieur. I am interested to know your true opinion. I have always thought the last paragraph finished a little abruptly, Mrs. Plum admitted, but perhaps you wish to withhold one or two ingredients from publication, which is understandable. Every chef is entitled to their secrets. Monsieur laughed and seemed pleased by her response. Yes, they are, but in this case it was a simple printing mistake on the part of the publisher. Never was an omission more keenly felt. A whole section on the importance of nutmeg. Mrs. Plum's face lit up. Nutmeg? Oh, I wouldn't have thought to add it to a bechamel. Together we shall replicate my original recipe, and I look forward to hearing your opinion on the complexity of taste that can be achieved. Mrs. Plum looked ready to burst with joy, and April could not help but be impressed with Monsieur's handling of a potentially awkward situation. And now, madame, if it would please you, he went on, I would be honoured if you would show me your kitchens. Mrs. Plum agreed at once, and they disappeared into the nether regions of the house, leaving behind Monsieur's underlings to oversee the unloading of the vehicles. April remained in the entry hall to direct the footmen as they carried in the silverware and other items not destined for the kitchens. After a few minutes, sensing a presence behind her, she turned to find Leighton had appeared and was staring at the commotion with a scowl on his face. Never fear, the house will be soon back in order, she told him, smiling her understanding. I don't want to contradict you, Miss April, but it seems to me we won't have a moment's peace until this dinner party is out of the way, he grumbled. Well, Mrs. Delamere does nothing by half, but you need not think your workload will increase, said April. The extra staff she sent will prove useful. I can handle the additional workload, Miss April, he said, squaring his shoulders. I don't need to be modicoddled because of my age. I wouldn't dream of it. Not when I know you could teach the younger members of our staff a thing or two about stamina. And I'm sure I need not tell you how much my mother and I depend on you. We are counting on you to make certain all goes smoothly for the dinner party. Leighton sniffed, not ready to be mollified. I suppose I'll have to discuss the wine list with the Frenchie, he muttered darkly. This comment struck dread into April's breast and her smile wavered. Leighton held certain deeply embedded prejudices against foreigners, and it only now occurred to her that he was quite capable of insulting Monsieur. Oh, I... I don't think that will be necessary, she said, frantically trying to think of an excuse with which to avert such a calamity. I'm unable to compile the wine list without knowing what peculiar dishes he plans on serving up, insisted Leighton. Actually, um... The wine has already been agreed upon, she announced. I forgot to mention it. But Miss April, begging pardon, that's my job, he said with a hurt expression. Of course it is, and I would never dream of interfering in your domain. But you see, the wine was offered to us as a gift, and I couldn't refuse. From who? he asked, creasing his already impressively wrinkled brow even further. Good morning. Hugh called out, walking through the open front door and sidestepping past two footmen struggling under the weight of a large oak chest. Hugh! April exclaimed and suddenly broke into a beatific smile. I appeared to have caught at a bad time, he said, taking off his hat. Shall I come back later? No, stay! she cried. Hugh eyed her suspiciously. 
Her apparent delight in seeing him was incongruous, given what had passed between them at Mrs. Jameson's. Moreover, her bright mood was entirely at odds with his own. He resented the necessity of the conversation he had come to have with her. "'What have I done to be in your good books?' he asked, lifting a cynical eyebrow. "'I was just telling Leighton how good you were to insist on making us a present of the wine for our dinner party from your own cellars. My mother and I can't thank you enough.' Her eyes beseeched him not to give her away. He found his mood softening. The minx was up to something, and he was curious to find out what. Hugh dragged out the silence that followed, enjoying the way that doubt, and then indignation, seeped into April's eyes. Just when she was beginning to think he would betray her, he offered her a rather dry look and said, There's no need for thanks. As your landlord, it's my responsibility to keep your cellar well stocked, and it's sadly lacking at present. Leighton gave Hugh a hard stare. That last part, I believe, for it's nothing but the truth, he said belligerently. April threw her elderly retainer a look of reproach. He would not acknowledge it and continued to glare at Hugh. Mr. Royce and I have some business to discuss, she said hastily, before Leighton's suspicion could bear fruit. Please have the tea tray sent up. Without waiting for a response from either man, she started up the stairs. What game are you playing at? Hugh asked when he had caught up with her. April looked furtively over her shoulder and found Leighton still standing in the same spot, watching them. Shh, she cautioned under her breath. Only when they had entered the drawing room and she had closed the door behind them did she allow herself to speak. I must beg your pardon, she began. I did not mean to impose on you in such a way. I will, of course, procure my own wine, only I cannot involve Leighton in the task. When I make an offer of a gift, whether in person or by proxy, I honour the commitment, he responded in a calm way that made her feel abashed. I truly am sorry. I shouldn't have said anything so improper. I only did so as I could see no other way of avoiding a confrontation between Leighton and Monsieur Balzac. And I assure you, if Leighton has an opportunity to air his views on the French in front of Monsieur, then there will certainly be a confrontation. Monsieur Balzac, he asked. Mrs. Delamere's chef. April hesitated briefly. Why, yes, she has kindly agreed to lend him to us for our dinner party. My mother and I have known Monsieur for several years now, for, as you know, Mrs. Delamere is a close family friend, he finished for her. Yes, you have mentioned it before. She regarded him warily. His countenance remained politely blank and this in itself fed her suspicion. Hugh's countenance was never blank. "'You are fortunate,' he continued. "'There are any number of persons who would like Monsieur Balzac to grace their kitchens. I believe several unsuccessful attempts have been made to steal him away from Mrs. Delamere.' "'I have no intention of stealing him,' April said indignantly. "'I know. You couldn't afford him,' he replied in a cavalier way. "'I was simply giving in to the temptation to bait you a little.' A weakness of mine, as we both know. I should think you would be ashamed to admit it, she snapped. No, why should I? Because you cannot go around admitting whatever outrageous things pop into your head. Imagine if everyone were to do so. We would all sink into a mire of unpalatable truths and be continuously causing offence. We cannot have a civilised society if we do not learn to control the words coming out of our mouths. Which is why, he said, 
I rarely take the opportunity to speak my mind with such freedom. April blinked in surprise. How fortunate I am to inspire you with such veracity, she observed without appreciation. Hugh laughed. No, certainly not fortunate. You are a strange man. Won't you sit? She indicated to a chair and then sat herself down on the settee. Hugh, however, surprised her by walking over to the door. Are you leaving? she asked, a wave of disappointment sweeping through her. He opened the door without replying and then walked back to take the chair closest to her. We appear to keep returning to this subject, he said, but you need to be more cognizant of your reputation when you are in London. Young, unmarried women do not entertain gentlemen alone with the door closed. For some reason, on this particular occasion, she was gratified that he was observing the proprieties so strictly on her behalf. Thank you, but I am not such a young woman as you seem to think me. Now, so that we are perfectly clear, I don't expect you to provide the wine for my dinner party. Hugh offered her a challenging smile. Don't smile at me in that fashion, she snapped. I mean it. I will not accept the wine. And if you are so ungentlemanly as to go against my wishes, I will simply refuse to accept the delivery. For all I care, it can sit on the street to be stolen. If that is how you wish to distribute your gift, he said, so be it. April's agitation grew. It was unconscionable that she had put Hugh in the position of having to offer up such an extravagant gift. Before she could think of a suitably final rejoinder, her mother entered the room. Hugh, dear, how delightful to find you here, said Lady Hartwood. I hope you are well. Hugh stood at once and her ladyship gave him both her hands and a cheek to kiss. I'm always well, ma'am, he replied. May I ask what or who has put that high bloom in your complexion? Oh, I was just out driving with your uncle. What a shame you missed each other. He would have certainly come up had he known you were here. And to what do we owe the pleasure of your company today? Hugh waited for her to be seated before once more sitting down himself. I have two reasons for visiting. Firstly, I wanted to confirm the arrangements for the wine I am to provide for Friday. From my own cellars, of course. Oh, are you providing the wine? I had not realised, said Lady Hartwood, looking across at April. No, Mr Royce is most certainly not providing the wine, April informed her. He wishes to make us a present of it, but I... A small gift for you, Lady Hartwood, interrupted Hugh. I hope you will not deny me the enjoyment of it, and especially since it is my own fault your cellars here are so badly stocked. Oh, how thoughtful of you, exclaimed her ladyship, leaning over to squeeze his hand. What can I say but thank you? I would be delighted to accept. I understand from your uncle that your cellars are quite exceptional. April knew her mother had little idea that the small gift would end up costing more than an expensive piece of jewellery. April had few illusions that he would provide them with anything less than the best. Oddly, this altruism only annoyed her. Mama, we are perfectly capable of buying our own wine, she said firmly. Why, of course we are, love, but that does not mean we are so graceless as to reject a gift based on such reasoning. April was silenced. Thoroughly annoyed by Hugh's unscrupulous tactics, she was also mortified that her own actions had led them to this point. And what is the second reason for your visit, Hugh, dear? asked Lady Hartwood. Hugh found himself momentarily at a loss as to how to proceed. He had expected to have this particular conversation with April, 
and had no compunction about bringing up the matter with her. However, he found himself reluctant to bring it up with Lady Hartwood, for the simple reason that he wanted to spare her any embarrassment. He relaxed back into his chair and offered her ladyship an apologetic smile. I wanted to broach the subject of my fiancé and her mother with you. It appears they never received an invitation to your dinner party. I suspect it stemmed from the fact that you believed Mrs Starling's indisposition still continued. Miss Starling wanted me to let you know that her mother is now fully recovered. Oh, that is wonderful, to be sure, said Lady Hartwood uneasily, and proceeded to lose herself in a string of half-finished sentences. I did wonder if perhaps, if it might be inopportune, but of course, without question, I thought we had sent, but perhaps not. April had always thought that Miss Starling should be invited, and was not at all surprised that Hugh felt the need to redress this omission. Although it occurred to her, by gifting the wine, he had purposefully made it impossible for them to say no to him. This type of calculated manoeuvre disgusted her, and she was more disappointed than she cared to admit. "'Please tell the Starlings their invitation must have been misplaced,' she said, lying with a proficiency her mother lacked. "'We did think it a little strange not to have received their reply, but that is now explained. We hope they will be able to join us.' Hugh had not wanted to come fishing for an invitation, but, as Miss Starling had pointed out to him in her sweet-tempered way, the oversight could be viewed as a slight towards herself and her mother, and it would not be in anyone's interest if such malicious gossip began to take root. And so Hugh had felt honour-bound to do her bidding. Thank you, he said in his curt way, although he knew very well there was no misplaced invitation. Not at all, a simple misunderstanding, replied April, and before she could think better of it, she added, no inducement was necessary. A flicker of something dangerous lived in Hugh's eyes for an instant. Then it's fortunate no inducement was offered, he drawled. No, April asked, an eyebrow rising in challenge. No. What inducement? asked Lady Hartwood, looking from one to the other, confusion in her large blue eyes. April tore her gaze away from Hugh. Nothing, Mamma. simply another misunderstanding. On my part this time, it would seem. She then turned the conversation by telling her mother that they would need to speak to Monsieur Balzac about the menu as soon as possible, and advised Hugh so that he could match the wine accordingly. This subject distracted Lady Hartwood for a few minutes, until Hugh excused himself with the claim of another engagement, and, saying he would show himself out, took his leave of them. On his way down the stairs, he passed a footman, carrying the tea tray, followed by the butler. "'I'm bringing the tea,' said Leighton, a note of accusation in his voice. "'You'll have to excuse me,' said Hugh. "'I can't stay to enjoy it. I will organise for the wine to be delivered to you on Thursday. I trust it will meet with your approval, but if you have a particular vintage in mind that has not been included, you have only to send word to me.' I don't yet know why an engaged man has taken it upon himself to provide the wine for another lady's establishment, Leighton said pugnaciously, but let me warn you, young man, I'm watching you. Hugh smiled and put a reassuring hand on the old man's shoulder. So you should, but you have my word you have nothing to fear from me. We both want only the best for your mistress. Which one? asked Leighton. Lady Hartwood, of course, replied Hugh and continued down the stairs.
End of chapter 19 and 20.